Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Big Interview. Nice to have you back. Coming up, Graeme Souness. First of all, thanks to every single one of you, the hundreds of you who've contributed to our Kickstarter campaign thus far. If you're listening to this interview with Graeme before our campaign ends on November 19th, then you can still pledge. The more money we raise, the more frequently we can produce these episodes. You want more of them? We want to make more of them. Go to kickstarter.com and search for Graeme Hunter. You'll find a video telling you more about the campaign and details of the rewards we're offering in return for your support. If you've been holding off pledging until closer to the end of the campaign, maybe until payday, then we've got some good news. We've introduced two new rewards. The first is a video Christmas card from me to you or to somebody that you like. Here's how it works. At the end of the campaign, we'll ask you for your name and the name of the person you want the message to go to. It might be you, it might be a pal, it might be a family member. You can add your own message for me to read or let me know roughly what you'd like me to talk about or even ask me a question that I'll answer in the video. Then I'll record it and send it to you by email in very good time for Christmas. A little bit higher up the rewards list is your chance to make your pitch for your dream guest on the Big Interview podcast. I'll call you, we'll record the chat and you'll have time to tell the listeners who you think we should get on the show and why. That little pitch of yours will go on to one of the podcasts. I can't promise that we'll land all the guests. I wish we could, but damn it, we will try. We've also reduced the pledges needed to land one of our premium rewards. There's still a stretch, I know. We do not want anybody to spend more than they can afford. But if you happen to have deeper pockets than most and you want a unique experience, check out the producer reward. So if you've listened and enjoyed the big interview and you're planning to pledge, hit pause, stop. Go to kickstarter.com, search for Graham Hunter, choose your reward. It's now or never. The big interview needs you. The more money we raise, the more interviews we produce, the more regularly we can make them come out. Now you're back. Thanks again for your support. You can listen to this with a warm glow of satisfaction, knowing you're one of us. Now, during my career, players have told me all kinds of things. They've shared... <laughs> whether I've asked them or not, about their sex lives. I remember a 
very senior player talking to me about being so nervous before a Champions League game, he wished that the bus would break down and he wouldn't arrive. Players have talked to me about being persecuted. They've shared their dreams. They've made me laugh. They've talked about abusive relationships with a parent. I've heard, I think, the A to Z of human experiences told to me by footballers in interview situations. But never before have I heard about a sweater knitted by mum that made you the coolest kid in the schoolyard. This is the soonest experience. He is not what you might expect. Nowhere near the player I grew up watching with something between admiration and trepidation. Sunis was an unbelievable midfielder. I think he would probably be the center point of my all-time 11. Not British, all-time. He was a ferocious man. Some of his tackles, some of his behavior were dangerous. Yet to speak to, he's intelligent, he's fun, he's multidimensional, he's definitely a hugely cultured man. I think, certainly for my taste, that he still sees football brilliantly, reads it exceptionally, and I, I hugely enjoy his company. It was a fantastic afternoon we spent with him down on the English Riviera. And what came up? Well, things like Spurs' greatest mistake, how happy Graham was at Middlesbrough, what it took for him to leave. The expression, find the dope. Tune in for that one. I love that expression. He's going to reveal... What exactly kept him awake all night before the European Cup final in Rome? He'll talk about over-the-top tackles against Madrid, why Serie A was easy for him, and what he might change about that revolutionary time he spent in Scotland. Sit back and lap this up. Graham Souness is an A-grade footballer, and he was an A-grade interview. Enjoy. I was first conscious of you as a player, probably in the last few months at Borough before you moved to Liverpool. And we'll come back to what happened afterwards. It wasn't for a long time I knew that you began at Spurs. And I'm enchanted by the idea. We recently spoke to Charlie Nicholas and I asked him about having been a young but still superstar player at Celtic coming down to London, because London mm. fascinates me. I'm head over heels in love with the place. So a 15-year-old Edinburgh boy, Graeme Souness, comes down to the world's capital at that stage, London. It's swinging London. I don't know how much swinging you were allowed to do by Bill Nicholson in age 15. Not six quid a week. <laughs> or with that budget. But the Beatles are recording uh, Sgt Peppers and you've come down to what's still possibly the, one of the two, three trendiest clubs in the world because of their double achievement. Dave Mackay is probably still there. Gilzine is still there. Who Gilzine, the boy's first book was about Gilzine. Tell us a little bit, please, about coming well, I, that Spurs. Well, I ended up at Spurs because I played for Scottish schoolboys against English schoolboys at White Hart Lane. Dave Mackay had broken his leg for the second time, and in the programme he noticed I'd gone to the same school as him. So I had a half-decent game. He recommended me to, to Bill Nick, and then uh, the scout, Charlie Faulkner, pursued me. I can remember one New Year's Eve he spent in our house with my family. At the time, so it was a fourth, from 14 onwards, I'd been training at Celtic Park. Uh, Celtic Park... Jockstein was their manager. The, the, they said to me at the end of that season, because I'm 15 in May, so I wasn't quite 15, they said, well, look, we'll come back to you at the end of the summer. Well, I'd already made my mind up. I was going to go to White Hart Lane. I just, you know, was fancied it. As you, as you rightly said, Spurs were one of the big teams then. And I went there and, and did a lot of growing up there. 
I did come back for a period of time. That was not so much homesick because I'd met a girl in Edinburgh when I was 17 years old, romantically involved, came back for a couple of months. Tottenham, there were several teams in Scotland would like to have taken me then. They didn't, they, um, they wouldn't let me go Tottenham. It actually, an MP for Lynn Lithgow, a guy called Tan Diel, Famous. actually mentioned it in the Houses of Parliament that sort of, they're stopping this young Scottish boy earning a living because they wouldn't release me. In the end, I went back to Tottenham and then left or was sold at 19 because I think they got fed up with me. Every Friday afternoon, a team sheet would go up and I wasn't on it, the first team sheet. And I used to knock on Bill next door and tell him on a regular basis I was better than um, Alan Muller, who was, I think, captain of England at the time, mm. Martin Peters and Stevie Perriman, who was a couple of years older than me. Looking back, I must have drove him mad. Looking back, he was 100% right and I was 100% wrong. But at no time did they say to me or anyone say to me, just be patient. You know, I'd been part of a very successful youth team there. that had won the Youth Cup, which is a big deal in England. You know, you're the best youth team in England. Well, if I remember, it was an epic where there was yeah. a series of draws, maybe against mm. Coventry, I think. Yeah, that's correct. I have no idea who came through the ranks with you in that team. Well, but... there was Steve Perriman was in the team. Um, a guy called Ray Clark who went on and ended up playing for Ajax. A guy called Mickey Dillon played in Tottenham's first team several times. Bob was a fullback who ended up, I played against him because he emigrated to New Zealand. And in 82, I played against him in the World Cup. He was the captain of the New Zealand team. But the, the, the Youth Cup final, as I recollect, I scored, it was a two-legged affair. And we won 1-0 at home and I scored a goal. And then we lost 1-0 away and I got booked. We tossed for the third game, which was in, was in Coventry. And we drew two each and I, I think I scored a goal and got sent off. And then the fourth game was back at White Hart Lane. We won 1-0, I scored a goal. And the rules were that if you got sent off in the final, you didn't get a medal. So I got my six quid bonus. I was on six pounds a week, basic wage, and we got six pounds bonus for winning it. But I never got the medal. Bill Nick always promised me to get me a medal, so I'm still waiting. I never, ever got it. In my life, I've imagined many different things because I have a weird and colourful imagination, but that I'd be sitting in... Um the English Mediterranean, trying to persuade Graham Sooners that he was right to go and knock on Bill Nick's door and pester mm. him when you've won the Youth Cup, you've won it in that style, you've shown that when the big game comes along, you score, you're going to go on to prove to be maybe Britain's best ever midfielder. And, and surely what you were demonstrating in that, that moment of impatience was only a slight lack of savviness about how to play Bill Nick, but you were interpreting your quality and your ability quite correctly. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I've never been um, slow in, uh, I've never had a, what's the, I think the correct words here, I've never been shy in coming forward, as I would say in Scotland, I've never, I've never undervalued my worth. I think um, a sort of player was always, maybe thought I was better than I actually was, which would stand you in good stead if ever the going got tough. You know, I was never, I was never shy in, in telling people that, you know, I thought I was good enough. And, and ultimately I proved them wrong and I was right, you know, i I would imagine, Bill Nick is a legendary manager, I suppose I'd imagine I'd be his biggest mistake, you know, that he let me go. I mean, he sold me, having played in the first team only once in a, as a substitute in the UEFA Cup in Iceland. I think I, re I did, I replaced Alan Mullery that night, and I played about half an hour. And then at 19, I was home for a new year and Christmas, and I got a call that they'd accepted a bid from Middlesbrough, and I was sold for £30,000. And, and latterly, I, f I found out I could have gone to a couple of, I think Charlton and both Millwall wanted me. And they could have sold me to um, clubs 
in London, but they wanted to get me as far away from London as possible. I imagined asking you about Gilly because he was a fellow Scot, but I've no mm. idea whether a Scot who was a superstar and is still a cult hero at the lane had time for a... Certainly did. You know, when I went to, when I went to Tottenham, there was Jimmy Robertson, who was a winger. Mm-hmm. There was Dave Mackay, who only spent a couple of weeks there when Dave Mackay was out because he went off to Derby with Brian Clough. But Gilly was there and he, he was very, very good to me. And I never really had the opportunity to say that to him until maybe three years ago at a Scottish Hall of Fame dinner in Glasgow. And I actually said that to him. He did. He was very good to me. You know, he wasn't putting his arm around me, but he always had a word for me. And he would take the mick out of the English because he was full of technique. He had more technique than anyone else with the ball. He would embarrass some of his teammates and he would always put it down to him being Scottish. He was, he was good to me. He made me... And it wasn't... I'm not, I, I wasn't looking for anything, but he was, he was good to me. He, he let me know. He, he let me know he was there for me if I ever had a problem. There was something of Berbatov, of sharing him about his... Movement and his skill, is that...? Yeah, he was, he was full of technique. He was the most wonderful header of the ball. You know, he could guide headers, he could glance headers, and the ball played into his feet. He was, he was full of technique. Not, as I recall, not overly aggressive, but not scared. He was someone that today would, would love the, the modern game, you know, because, as, because of his technique, he'd be allowed to get on a wee bit more. I'm imagining, in fact, I'm not imagining, I've cheated a little bit with a friend in common, I'll tell you about it in a minute. And I, and I asked about what the Middlesbrough experience might have been like for you. And he seemed to think that, that Jack Charlton, who was the manager at that time, had not only found the ideal man, ideal footballer in this young fellow he was sending from Spurs, but that he helped you, uh, it was suggested to me, in terms of rigour, in terms of, if not discipline, maybe the, 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 just that move from talent into the professional world. Of- yeah, I mean, as I said, I was always, I always had an ex- <laughs> Embarrassed to say it, but I'm being honest. I always had a very, very high opinion of myself. And when I look back now, you know, I'm a man of, a granddad of 60-odd now. And I think, I was the youngest of three boys. And I think I got tremendous confidence. I came from a really tight family, you know, a great mum and dad. But I was the youngest of three boys and I always had that, I don't know, that comfort blanket, if you like. You always had that security. I had two older brothers. The real upside on that, of course, in football terms, I always had someone to play football with. Mm-hmm. And I always played with people who were better than me, so that and it made me a bit tougher, maybe than most. Did you also play with people who would give you the brothers would give you a kick if needed if you were a bit? I, I think on a I would imagine on a weekly basis I got some treatment, and I would say I deserved it 100 percent of the time. <laughs> okay, this is a line I didn't expect quite to go down. Mm. Jack as a man, I mean, when, when but Jack didn't sign me. It was Stan Anderson who signed me, and the reason he signed me because, as I believe it, Harold Shepperson was Alf Ramsey's assistant. Shep was assistant manager at Middlesbrough, and I think Martin Peters, Martin Chivers, Alan Mullery had all told, or Shep had asked them about him, or they had told me, had told them about me, and that's how I ended up there. And then I only ever played one game for Stan, which was my very first game for Middlesbrough, an FA Cup tie at Plymouth, and we lost that, and I quickly got him the sack. And then Jack came along, and where you were going with, the, with your um, question was it? Jack did basically, he sat me down. As I said, I was quite large. You know, I thought the sun shot at the backside. So I can remember the conversation vividly. He just said, look, you could be a really good player and have a great, a great career, might win something. Or you could be like a lot of other talented young men who just drift out of the game and never achieve anything. And I, and I was ready for that sort of chat. As I said, when I was at Tottenham, there was no great communicators. The only guy I used to talk to us was, was the youth coach, Pat Welton, who you know, I knew liked me. And then there was Eddie Bailey, who was, you know, a rough diamond, you know, 
black and white. Bill Nick just didn't really speak very much. He was an austere man. Bill's a legend because the things that he did, he didn't just win, he built teams that were glorious to look at too. But I've spoken to, I've never, I never met him. And therefore I'm speaking through others who, who worked for him. And I was taught that he was quite, he could be an austere, maybe even quite an old fashioned man. He was, he never, he wasn't, he was from Scarborough, a Yorkshireman. No, I don't, what does that mean? You know, Dury Yorkshireman, I think that's, that's I've not coined that There's phrase. a certain steel in the Yorkshire yeah, character. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, he's, he's a legend. He knew his football, he knew players, but he wasn't a great communicator. Mm -hmm. Maybe that was the way it was in those in those days. But nobody, if someone had said to me at that, looking back, if someone had said to me, look, we think you've got a real chance. We don't think you're quite ready. Just be patient. I might not have been so difficult to deal with. Mm -hmm. I might have had a very different career. But you said an interesting phrase that you were ready to listen. At, but by the time Jack yeah. was preaching to you, and, and, I, and <clears throat> I've, I've listened to both those brothers, and you know, initially when I listened to Jack, he was the most colourful, funny football man I'd ever come across. So aggressive. Very great, you know, he's very aggressive, and I responded to that. Ah, I say aggressive, abrupt, sharp, to the point. There was no pussyfooting around the subject. It, it was, was a, he was straight to. It was, he was demanding. A, yeah, and I and I respond. I respond to that. Which is a characteristic which is never really going away. I like to think I'm. A, you know, if you put it in front of me, I'll deal with it. Can I take a sidetrack and ask you whether you think that's <clears throat> something that's particularly a Sooners family trait mm. in its positive side? Or is it something that, that north of the border we tend to have an overdose of, that we, we, we do like to respond, we like to be up for it, and we almost can't be seen not to be? I think as an element that with Scottish people, I think who we are a minority group. You know, and coming to, sort of coming, I was like that before I went to England. You know, I, I, I come back to the only, the only, I can only talk for myself. I think Scottish people and historically Scottish managers, there's always been a lot of them, successful ones. Maybe it's something in us which I can't find the words for, but I can talk about myself. I think what I had, which got me through the difficult times and was ready for the challenges that came along, was being the youngest of three boys. I had a father who never, ever, never said a bad word to me. You know, I was his, my other brothers might, might disagree when they hear this, but I, I, I was his favourite. I was a bear and I was the baby. My mother, if she got hold of me, would throttle me at every opportunity, but she, I could always run away, but my brothers would catch me. <laughs> So she was a disciplinarian, but my dad never, never said a cross word to me. He certainly never raised his hand to me. I had the most wonderful childhood. And I can only put it down to, you know, being confident in life because of my childhood and my, my parents. You're hinting at a security, a self-security. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I'm an ability to say, well, if I've got something to demonstrate with my feet or if I've got something to say, then I've got every right to, to do so. Mm -hmm. I wish more kids in society were brought up like that would have... I was, you know, I was always given enough rope to hang myself. <laughs> enough to get myself in trouble to the point where I'd be reined in. Again, again I look back at my childhood and it was just... You know, I was good enough at school. But I always knew I was going to be a football player. I was always outside. I always had lots of pals. And I, I look back on my childhood as, as... Although it only lasted till I was 15 in Scotland and then I left. But my childhood up to that point was just, was just fabulous. You're echoing things that... When I sat down with Gordon Strachan and we talked about this degree to which, particularly in Scotland, we've lost our love for the ball, we've lost our mastery of the ball, we've lost our innate, what I thought was an innate desire to develop our skills sufficiently that we could not just win, but we could show people how to do it with style. And he talked about that type of childhood and that, that incessant need to be outside. If you were good at football, you played it all the time. Then, now, did you feel 
that you always have to be near a football? Could you? Would you pick no, up a football now? No, I always have to be outside. Outside is rather yeah, than I'm, the ball itself. I've been out. I've been in my garden. That's why I was five minutes late. I've been in my garden cutting grass. And I, I have to get outside, even if it's raining, if it's cold. As a kid, I was either I was outside kicking a ball or on a bike. I was always outside. But you got to remember, there was nothing inside in those days. You couldn't flick a telly on and be there's two hundred channels to choose from. You know, you, you were turning lights off to save money for the electricity bill. I was dropping a prefab. It was cold. It was cold. Inside as it was outside. Get out and I'm move not, around. I'm not trying to paint a picture that we're... You know, but get out a, and move around to stay I warm. Never, yeah, I never ever thought we were hard up. But looking back, things were extremely tight. But I, I never ever went short of anything. I was always the best dressed at school. because so my mother was a wonderful knitter. Mm-hmm. And I used to have the most wonderful sweaters. <laughs> and of course, being the youngest, I got all the hand-downs from my brothers. But things must have been tight. You know, my mum had a job. He worked in the local government building in the kitchen. And my dad had two jobs. He had three, three sort of hungry sons to feed, didn't he? So you've talked about, I mean, you've, you've painted a picture of why somebody with talent might be secure about taking risks and going south and asking to play and then being moved on and taking on a challenge of playing for a World Cup winner less than 10 years after he'd been a World Cup winner. Jack Charlton was a very big personality, not the man who signed you, but the man who, who challenged you to make the next step in your career and again that, that I'd somehow or other when when before you moved to Liverpool when Borough were in the, the top division somehow or another as a relative youngster of 13-14 a Scot playing in an English team was always an attraction so I began to know of your name and follow you and then the move to Liverpool well, You're is, going to remember the name aren't you? Even in Scotland suppose, it's a very rare name. I suppose that's true I suppose that's true I'll be honest and say that Middlesbrough played in red and white, my team's Aberdeen, and mm. it was an identifiable strip. It was mm-hmm. not quite yeah, the a reverse hoop, Ajax, the, but, yeah. but it, it was reminiscent yeah. of Ajax too, because of the white hoop around the red. We didn't play like Ajax. <laughs> Were there, I mean, I shouldn't, I don't want to skip past Middlesbrough, but the, the questions are bursting out at me about life at Anfield. What was, what, oh, what can was, I just tell you at Middlesbrough? I lived in Diggs in Middlesbrough with a woman called Phoebe Hague, who who was like, my mother, only she let me get away with far more than my mother did. When the time came to leave, there was talk. I was so happy there. I mean, this sounds ridiculous. Numbers were, with all due respect, limited. You know, they can never, never, they're never going to be one of the big guys, are they? So at the time, there was Leeds, who were a big club, and Man City were both interested. When the time came, and I knew that Liverpool were interested as well, through Phil Borsma, who was a teammate of mine at Middlesbrough, who had come from Liverpool to Middlesbrough. And his big mate was a guy called Bob Rockliffe, who sadly died last year. And Bob Rockliffe had a garage where Bob Paisley used to go every single morning for a cup of tea before training and pick the horses. Uh, so I knew Liverpool were interested. But when the time came to leave, I was told to go to the Queen's Hotel in Leeds. And I can remember saying to myself, if it's Leeds or Man City, I'm not going to go. If it's Liverpool, it's a different story. Because they wouldn't tell me who I was going to meet. And that's how much, and it sounds ridiculous, and this is a fact, I was so happy and content at Middlesbrough. As much to do with the environment I had. Now this might be contradicting any thoughts you have about my personality, but I was so happy and content there. And we had a good team, remember? Mm-hmm. I think we finished fifth or sixth in the Premier League, the what, first division. I'm going to say Natras, Pop Robson, people of that generation. Am I? They, they, he wasn't at Middlesbrough then. He, no. he was at Sunderland, wasn't he, Pop Robson? He went to, went to West Ham. Give me some of the ideas of who played with you. David Mills played, who oh, ended yes. up being a British transfer Big record. To John Hickton. West Brom, did he coach? Yes, okay. Ron Eckerson bottom. 
John Nixon, Bobby Murdoch, of course, was there for a bit. What? Alan Foggin was a great goal scorer. Yeah. David Armstrong, who played for England, had a wand of a left foot. That's yeah, sorry, David. But a guy called Willie Madron, who was a, who was the best player we had, but had a dodgy left knee, and sadly Willie got that it, terrible, it, terrible disease, motor neuron, yeah, yeah. that took him only at a young age, and he was a proper player. And we're, Jim, we're, Jim Platt, maybe. Jim Platt, the goalkeeper. Yeah. yeah. Stuart Bowman, centre half. I can Frank Spragan, left back. We're, we're, some, we're some really good players. Some really good players. So, anyway, I go to the Queen's Hotel in Leeds and it's, it's Liverpool and then the rest is history, if you like. What, what had made you so attracted to, to Liverpool? Because I think people listening to that now who, who maybe didn't see that era might have forgotten that it's only a couple of years before that decision that City, OK, four or five years previously, City have been champions of England. But they're reaching European UEFA finals in Leeds have been, for the previous eight, nine years, hmm, competitive, team. aggressive, dominant, maybe just ahead of Liverpool at that stage. They're a year off under Jimmy Arnfield reaching the European Cup they final, but your heart's set on Liverpool. When you look at what Leeds won with that great team, that yeah. it wasn't too much. No. Should have won a European Cup, admittedly. I think they were cheated out of a European Peter Cup. Peter Lorimer's free kick. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, when Liverpool came in, the year before, so that was January 78, and May 77, we were in... Wollongong on tour with Middlesbrough in a miners club a German full of Germans watching Liverpool beat Borussia Mönchengladbach in yeah. Rome for the first time what a game that was but Liverpool, and Liverpool is for me still the best place to play football uh-huh. yeah there's bigger and newer stadiums but Anfield is, a, is still we'll go into that maybe later but in terms of you go to Anfield and I don't care what team you support you go to Anfield and listen to them singing mm-hmm. you'll never walk alone before the game I, everyone must get the hairs rising on the back of the neck. It seems to me before we talk a special about place. the playing and you're playing there, what you've just described feels to me, now you can say that it's a stupid expression or romantic, but when great sport, when great football intersects with something in its people, some sort of social movement of expression, whether it's the, the wit that the Anfield crowd was famously you know, said to have during the 60s and every new pop song was t- turned into a chant, but that passion that you're talking about, that's something, that expression of a, of, a, of a need from a people to see it's 11 men doing well and lift the city up, lift the town up, get away from the working class life, which was harder in those days mm-hmm. than it is now if you can get a job now. I think that's the communion that you're talking about, brilliant sport, plus well, people urging them on because of something beyond, I just like a win. Yeah, I think it was just a unique place in those days. You know, the music scene in mm. the 60s, the 70s, going into the 80s. It was a unique place that was the club to play for. For people who might who are listening to this might find this really hard to, to take on board. In those days, if you had a chance to go to Liverpool, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, you went to Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Liverpool were the dominant team. Liverpool were the team. They were the serial winners. They had found that magic and there was never a choice. There was never a choice. It was just a very special place to be. I'm often riveted by what you say on the television because it's educational. It lifts me up and it, and it sparks ideas. And you once you. used one of the best expressions I've ever heard any ex-manager, any ex-footballer say when, I think you were commentating on a, a Barcelona away game in the first season of Pep Guardiola. Shakhtar Donetsk had been leading 1-0 in a really bruising game and had gone to sleep. And Barcelona had thrown off a hotly, con- one off a hotly contested throw-in that Shakhtar weren't awake for. And you said, you just said, find the dope. You said, that's what we were always taught. And mm-hmm. you said, and you explained what it meant. You said, at Liverpool, we were always taught, poor players will take a breather. 
a second yeah. or two. Yeah. That seemed to me encapsulate something of the brilliance of the thinking and the coaching beyond just putting together 15 or 16 superb footballers at Liverpool. Yeah, it makes me chuckle today because, you know, the new buzzwords, new terminology, the new, what do they call it, the um, false number nine. <laughs> you know, all the, the technical cages, you know, the new philosophy, the project. I, I may be guilty of some of this. Well, you know, let me tell you, Bob Paisley would, on a regular basis, say, can someone play, and there'd be an expletive, someone please tell me what leading the line means. Or would someone effing tell me what blindside run is? And he used to chuckle then. So what he's doing now, <laughs> looking down on us, he must be, he must be in his alley, he must be chuckling every time football comes on the telly. Um, there's nothing new in football. Mm -hmm. But Liverpool had a very basic way of getting the message across to you. You know, from Ronnie Moran to Joe Fagan to, to, to Bob Paisley. There was so much knowledge, they had so much knowledge, and, and a lot of it must have, you know, been gained with their experiences and a lot of it listening to Shanks, because I think he was exactly the same. Just simplified it. And what you're talking about there is in the game of football, as the game goes on, someone will go to sleep. Because what separates the really top players is that they don't go to sleep. They never knock off. They're thinking, they're thinking the brain's going from the first whistle to the very last one. The, the average to good players, when the ball goes out for a throw and the ball goes dead for a free kick, they're looking, the brain switches off, they're looking for a little rest. It might only be a second, two seconds. But they're looking for a little rest to dream about where they're going that night, what they're going to do tomorrow. The fully focused players are the great players who all the time are thinking ahead of their opponents. And we were always told, there'll be a dope out there, find them. Someone will go to sleep at a vital time, find them. Get in behind him, yeah. break the marking, yeah. take the throw quicker. Yeah. And I, and I was speaking about it on Sunday at, the, um, at Southampton Man United. I was doing the game. Man United are all this possession. And I said on the table, what they're looking to do is there'll be someone just goes to sleep. You know, they're moving the ball side to side and they're poking it into the centre forward. It's coming back out. And just, you have that much possession. Somewhere, one of that back four, one of the midfield players will not do the job for a split second. And that's the opening you go for. And that's what Barca do. That's what Bayern Munich do. That's what Real Madrid do. That's what all the top teams do. They'll keep the ball and they appear to be going nowhere with it. And they're just looking for a dope. See, this is, what, this is where um, age, for once, is an advantage because we didn't live in an age of sky then, but we could watch Liverpool regularly. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't watching to learn. I was watching for pleasure on television. But if you have a love of football, you, you pick up a little bit. And, and what I saw in that era, it was very difficult to get the, team, the, the, the ball off your team. And, and I felt that you were a team that when you were allowed to play, when you wanted to play, maybe particularly at Anfield, it was just... Glorious to watch. It was it was sublime. When things weren't quite going for you, when it was an away game, domestically or European, would make it a different game. Oh, I, I saw two utterly distinct characteristics. But it was for me, it was deliberate, it was intelligent, it was ruthless. But it was that mixture of really ruthless football, but also some of the best English club football that I think there's ever been. Yeah, we. I don't think. I don't think the, the Liverpool of that really gets the credit because listen, people will tell you that the game's changed a lot quicker. That's absolute bollocks. All our training was geared to one and two touch, mm. but we were doing it on pitches which were terrible. So if we could do it, if we could play one and two touch on those pitches, mm. what could those players do today on these pitches? 
It's, it's, one, it's not about how quick you can run. It's about your speed of thought mm -hmm. and how much technique you your have. Your ability as well. How much technique you have yeah. to play one and two touch. Yeah. What picture you have in your head to be able to play one and two touch. And what we also had, we had we've got players who I, I think were so underrated. Yeah, I'll give you one, Phil Neal. He's got five European Cup medals. Mm -hmm. The European Cup, the Champions League. Mm -hmm. got four winners and one losers. Now, anyone can get lucky once and win that competition. And there are, there are people and teams who have won it once and were very lucky. He's a serial winner of that. He's, he's sandwiched by and Paco you, Gento and just behind him, Andres Iniesta. So yeah, it's quite good people company. Never, people never talk, of, talk about him. Ray Kennedy, oh, God bless him. And, and this is not a sympathy walk because he's suffered terribly for the last 25 years with Parkinson's. Ray Kennedy was a 12, 15 goals a season from left side midfield. And what would, you, what would that be worth today? Terry Mack with 20 goals yeah. a season. I'd bet Terry Mack, I wouldn't bet him, he would bet me pre-season who's going to score the most for 100 quid. Every Christmas, just before Christmas, you're going to pay me now then. And I paid him at Christmas. It was a standing joke. You know, I'm getting five and six and sevens and he's getting 25. But he, he had me on toast for that. I'm, I'm seeing him tomorrow night, so I might ask him for some of it back. You, you, you talked about the quality of a footballer like Phil Neal or Terry Mack or Ray. And you've talked about the awful pitches, but that you train for one and two touches. Can you just describe to us what the training exercises were like that emphasised that? What did they demand well, of you? Small games, tight uh, areas like they do today. Small games, tight areas. Sevens against sevens, eights, yes, fives. Sevens, eights, right. tight areas. Two touch. Then they go to all in and maybe back to two touch and all in. And time and time again, people would turn up from all over the world to Melwood and have their clipboard and they're writing what we do. Or we'd walk around the perimeter of the training ground at Melwood, we'd jog around the perimeter, we'd stretch, we'd do three-quarter sprints, and then we'd do some sprints, five aside, break for a few more sprints, five aside, a few more sprints and go home. So the first couple of days, he's written that down. On the third day, you see his folder sitting next to him on the bench. <laughs> He'd give up. And then I would say half a dozen times, one of these guys would say to me, you come back in the afternoon and do your real work. <laughs> they thought we're hiding something from them. It can't be this. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. It's that my first game and my last game. So when I was sold from Middlesbrough to, to Liverpool, I was, a, I was a record between two English clubs, which is quite a big deal for a defensive midfield player. You normally see strikers that go for the big money. So I'm training, like I've just described. The first game's away to West Brom. So... I'm in the dressing room. I'm looking, you know, John Toshak, Tommy Smith, Ray Clemens, Ian Callaghan, Steve Highway, all these, you know, serial winners. And I said at quarter to three, I said, I've got to ask, I've got to ask. So I said, Joe, can I have a word? So Joe Fagan came over. And I'm trying to whisper this. I said, Joe, you know, I've been here a week. How, no one's said anything to me. How does he want me to play? Now, Joe was, had the softest voice. And when he, when he spoke, you had to sort of lean, lean in and listen to him. And he never, very rarely raised his voice. So... He went, what? He said, F off, which is so unlike Joe. We've spent all this effing money on you and you're asking me how to play football. By this time, the dressing was looking at me, laughing at me. So I never asked again. So that was my very first game. My very last game was European Cup final. Rome in Rome. We'd won the League Cup, we'd won the league. And then we'd gone to Israel for six days in the sun to relax. Came back on a Saturday and the game was on a Wednesday. When I say relax, it was like boys going to southern Spain for a real proper relaxation. Never mind football, I was just... Cultural night out. Yeah, I mean, it was, 
It was pretty full on. And there was two Italian journalists came on that show. I'm getting sidetracked here. And as a captain, I said, why don't you come down, come out for dinner with us one night? Well, they couldn't leave the hotel before we went for dinner because we got them pissed. <laughs> we stand at the bar and like, they had had three beers. And they said, sorry, we can't come out. Head spinning. They just couldn't believe what we were doing. They would see us around the pool, ordering the beers and sitting out and sunning in Israel, 100 degrees. So anyway, we come, we get to the game. We've never mentioned Roma. Roma are, we're playing Roma in Rome. We're Liverpool. We're Liverpool. They've got World Cup winners. They've got Cerezo and Falcao, two great Brazilian midfield players. So we've never mentioned them. So the Tuesday night before the Wednesday game, we arrive at Tuesday afternoon, train in the stadium on a Tuesday night. We go to bed. I'll tell you the full story because it is, I think it is quite how we describe it. Kenny and I are in the room together. So we get into bed, sensible. The telly's blaring next door, so banging on the, the wall, nothing. I go out, bang on the door, nothing. Phone down, someone comes up to try, nothing. So eventually we get to sleep. Wake up in the morning, Wednesday morning. We're coming out our room, and the person coming out the room next door where all the noise was, was our manager. <laughs> it was Joe Fagan. I said, boss, I said, you kept us awake all night. I said, sorry, boys, we, we opened the second bottle of scotch last night. <laughs> it was a long night. <laughs> So then, that's the Wednesday morning. So they've arranged a training ground for us, which we turn up and it's a ploughed field, so we don't train. Then we come back, so we don't train, we just have a walk. We come back to the hotel. We're having our lunch. Joe stood up, tapped his glass, asked the waiters to leave, and we're all nudging ourselves saying, what's he going to say? Because we never had team meetings. No one ever spoke. We've not mentioned Roma. So he stood up and we're all nudging, what's he going to say? So he stood up and he was looking up at the ceiling and he said, big game tonight. Um, these are a good team. They must be a good team. Won the championship last year, final of the European Cup. He's talking to himself. <laughs> and then he said, um, can't be as good as us. Now, the bus leaves at 5.30. Make sure no one's late. That was the team top. Never knew it. We didn't know. We never spoke about their players. We knew that some big players. And we went out, and they were frightened to death of us. We played them off the park. They were frightened of us. Explain that. Do you mean a mix? Of your footballing ability, what you'd achieved before, or do you mean your mentality? The... We had the mentality which was a bit like how they train a police dog. When you train a police dog, when they train a police dog, the dog never loses. The bad guy has to walk away. You know, he has to back off. So the police dog's always on. And we were a bit like that. We, we were always, the only thing they said to us before games wasn't, you know, you're playing a team that plays 4 4 2 or be care, worry about. We never mentioned opposition. What they would say is, if you lot are at it today, there's nothing for anyone. Nothing for any of them. And that included a European Cup final against Rome in Rome. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You, you've, you've sparked a thought back to the last conversation that you and I had. It was on the telephone. And I think Jamie Redknapp had phoned you to tell you to watch the Paris final against Real Madrid. Yeah. And you re-watched it. And you said to me, we must have been horrible to play against. We were hard to play against. You used a stronger word on yeah. the telephone. Because nobody, we've now established, for anybody who didn't see that football, we've now established, we're talking about some of the all-time great British footballers. We're talking about an ability to play football which is gorgeous, flowing, swaying, not intelligent, that changes that, that of direction. A, that was a not that war night, of attrition. That across, was meaty. Across the board. But that's what I'm getting to. So that nobody should mistake when they listen to this podcast that I'm going to the nitty-gritty having forgotten the beauty. But you and the team, there was no messing with you at all. Listen, it was Real Madrid. And Real Madrid, this classy act, what they are now, they were, they've always been like that in my mind. They've always been a, you know, such a special club. But... I mean, they, 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 wanted, they took us on physically. Mm. They didn't want to make it a game of football. If you watch that game, they were putting themselves about. Mm-hmm. And we met fire with fire, and it was a real... You watch some of the tackles, you, not, you would not get away with them today. And it was the Parc de Prince. The pitch was cutting up. The, 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 line, the, you know, the lines, the white lines, they were lined. There must have been years and years of this, and the, the, the lines were raised. The ball was bubbling all over the place, which gave you a great excuse for mistimed tackles. <laughs> but it was... If you watch that game, they had... They had some players that could, you know... Could, Stilica was, was, a, was he no could, mess with Stilica. Camacho, yeah, he, was yeah, yeah. A, he was a handful. He was, but... There were a few that could all put the foot in. Santiana, Juanito, and, and big old gentle, slow-moving Dabosky, who I'm sure wasn't the one that put his foot in, but... I can't remember could him. Could play, you had to shut him down. But and they it, were frightened of us. In the three European Cup finals I played in, Bruges at Wembley, frightened of us, didn't make a game of it. Real Madrid didn't make a game of it. They had a game plan to, to take us on physically. And Rome and Roma, they, they were terrified of us. You see, they, okay. I, I, That's where Liverpool, that was a standing Liverpool had uh-huh. at that time. Can I tell you a little story to end? And, this, and I was told this because I forgot this story, but I was talking about it in the last couple of days. I can't think who I was talking to. So this is how the game is different today. We have won the European Cup in Paris. Phil Neal and I get drug tested. So we have to give a urine sample afterwards. We come out the stadium, it's empty. So... There's no one waiting for us. We're just on our own, some part of Paris, and streets are empty. And if you remember, well, you won't remember, right at that time, there was this sort of English hooligans were running riot. So the, the French police were really up for it. We come out, I'm saying to Neely, we've got a taxi. So we spend 20 minutes trying to flag a taxi down, no one will stop for us. No. So I'm thinking, what are we going to do? So blue lights come, come flashing towards us. I, I jump out and I put my arms up, <laughs> stop, stop. So this van pulls up. And at the back of it, pile four or five or six, riot police, and they've got the batons in their hand. And I've, I've had to go into my pocket and show them my medal, my winner's medal, and ask them if they'd take me back to the hotel we were staying in. It's on the tip of my tongue. So you know, I'm pretending I'm kicking a ball. Yeah, player, you know, 
and here's my medal. <laughs> you can believe it. So Phil Neely and I went from the Parc de Prance back to our hotel, the Meridian it was, in the back of this police van with the blue light flash from these riot police. Can you imagine that happening you, today? No wonder you're laughing now because the modern footballers, and I'm lucky to live some of, near some of the greatest, they're cosseted, they looked after, yeah. they, they, they click their fingers and everything stops. And it, it still well, seems ridiculous. We just won. Rich, but you've been left alone. We've just the won the biggest competition you can for a club side. <laughs> because <laughs> the boys, but that was Liverpool. I never thought, never thought, up until I, I retold this story, I said four or five days ago, I never thought, well, at the time, that's... Your nose wasn't out of deserted. No, that was Liverpool. What lads? Get on with it. You wouldn't get treated like that in a pub no. team. If that was happening in a pub team in Linlithgow or something that, like that, they'd be like, that, oh, lads, At that time, I swear to you, we never thought twice about it. That was, get on with it. Who do, you, who do you think you are to think we should spend our time looking after you? Not a chance. That was the way it was. You, you brought up something that I wanted to ask you about, and I, I don't necessarily need to be careful about it, but in all the conversations we've ever had and all the things that... Um, I've seen you do latterly. You're a very different man from the very intimidating man on the football pitch. Gestures. There's one photo I was looking at on the way to here on the travel. You're shaking hands with the Australian captain in the playoff. Scotland, Australia, the playoff to go to the World Cup finals. And I don't know what there is in your eyes and your face, but it looks as if somebody's going to get it, really. And in tackling, you probably only used the attributes you had that were allowed in those days and it's changed so much now but did you create a personality that helped intimidate people around you in never, the football world never, it was all ne real never worked at anything mm. never thought about anything that was me that was me I like to think that whatever I was on the pitch and was more or less opposite to how I was off it I wasn't mm. an aggressive person off the pitch Isn't people pull up videos of me you know involved in ridiculous challenges but there's always been a story Behind that, you know, I never went and did anything outrageous without there being some provocation or some history behind that. The incident, which is the famous one at Rangers, we're playing Stour, do you know, Bucharest. Well, the story behind, and there's a ridiculous challenge I made, it's not, you can't call it a tackle, it's just like assault. But in the first game, they had a guy who was going round, Lakatush, his name was, going round topping everyone. And then in the second game, he wore his shirt out of his shorts. And within 10 minutes, the second game at Ibrox, I've sort of turned and I can see this guy with his short, his shirt outside his shorts. I'm thinking, happy days, I've got him nice and early and I've assaulted him. And, it, and it, it's ridiculous and it's embarrassing to watch it now. And then when he goes down, I realise I've got the wrong man. I look up and Lakatush is standing over to my left hand side, smiling at me. And so there was intimidation. That was a big part of football in those days. You've touched on it. We were a great football team at Liverpool. But we had a hat for that. And if it wasn't going to be that, we had a hat for making it a very different game. Which is about the winning gene, I think. Because I never wanted to imply at all that it was about physical intimidation for fun. You've talked about, if it's done to me, I'll do back. But it's also about some of those trophies would have been down to the fact that across that group, most of them felt like you did. We will win this physically and mentally yeah. and with our technique, that, that mix. And I think the player in those days, is it any different today? I mean, See, that's why I'm asking you, because I think it's wholly different today. Not simply because of the rules. I think the public, I remember enjoying and expecting that at the team that I supported. And they, they still matter passionately to me. But I grew up watching Willie Miller. Now, Willie fits exactly the template you've described there. There's no messing with Willie. 
and there's a lot of equalising went on. Mm. And part of the £5.50 I paid to go and sit on the beach end was I knew that every game, not every second game, I'd see that. Mm. And now I'd, I think whenever I defend the art of tackling on, on television, well, radio, or no, social I media, why do I get savaged see... by youngsters who are like, you can't do that. Well, why do we humans like boxing? Why do we like contact sports? Why, you know, the richest prize in sport was a boxing, was fighting. You know, why, why, why do we like that? Because we like see young men test their physical strength against another young man, their mental strength against another young man. Football's no different. I think, I think um, a lot of people from my generation, not players, would say they enjoyed the football then far more than they do, they do now. I feel that, there's, that it's more bloodless. I, we see more of Leo Messi now than we could have done in your day, because of, even because of his size, simply ah. because he is so small, I'm not yeah, but he's all, he's all there, isn't he? Oh, under air. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's he solid. Yeah. He's, it, I think, you know my thoughts on Messi, I think Messi's the best player that's ever kicked the ball. Mm -hmm. And I think he would have been if he had played in my generation or before my time. The, he, he could have done these things then. Yeah. Yep. Then I bow to you. That's, what, that's one of the things I console myself that we've got in return for stripping out some of the testosterone, stripping out some of the... It's a more bloodless sport. But people say... There are fewer players walking around with sticks now. There are few, fewer players yeah, but I don't, who... I, don't th I think that's the treatment and drugs they were willing to have injected into them at the time. Masking the injury and then letting yeah. it get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Well, the cortisone was a big thing in my day. Footballers were treated like simply like get chattel, like commodities get them, get them then. Fit for the weekend, yeah. Inject them, get them out. Mm. Okay, then I, no, I accept that point. And we share a point of view in that. I, I lament that that degree of physical competition within boundaries not going out to break somebody's leg or you know do their achilles or whatever but why, is, why something is, is missing you know why is ice hockey so popular why is american football so popular why is you know all the martial arts so popular we're humans we there is that competitive side to us we like to see it so it's eternal it's a human yeah it's, need, it's part of us urge. Yeah. you you would have needed some of that in italy because that was a well, time when Italy was still... Well, you know what? No. I went there when I was 31, and I'd won everything here. And I, I remember thinking to myself, well, it doesn't work there. You know, okay, I'm leaving Liverpool, I'm 31. If it doesn't work out, then, you know, there'll always be something. And I went there and I found it easy. I found the football easy. It was a bit slower. Teams, not like it is now, there was not so much pressing. The pressing was an English game then, mm -hmm. come after you. There, for a midfield player, you could get on the ball a lot easier. You had more time. Because they would, they would retreat. Uh -huh, okay. They would back off. They would back onto their own half and let you have the ball. Where it's a very different game all over the world. For those who, who are younger and haven't seen it, catenaccio means many things, including some very close man-to-man -man marking. But this, when you've talked about teams falling back, it was like maybe ten men, literally yeah. ten men behind the ball, yeah. which gave a man with a passing vision and time in midfield. Mm. Like you, that's what yeah. you're saying became slightly I easier. I found it easy to play there, and I often think. Because I signed a three-year deal and I spent two years there. And then I got offered a Rangers job and I came back. How, if I hadn't come back, how many years could I have played to 36, 37 Italy? I think I could have done as a central midfield player. But, okay, just let me jump back a second. When did you know you were leaving Liverpool and what made that decision for you? Because well, I'd imagine you were even more happy there than you talked about being well, my, I content at Middlesbrough. My wife, my wife at the time, my first wife, she had to leave the UK. She was going to inherit some monies and the way it had been structured for her by her parents, she had to leave the country. Italy, how, how did that happen? I mean, it's natural that a top team should come to you, but why Sampdoria? Well, why Italy? I think 
Trevor Francis and Liam Brady were at Sampdoria. The owner of Sampdoria was a chap called Paolo Mantovani, who was a billionaire, and he was building this young team. He had Mancini, Viali, Viequid. You know, he had some good young Water players, player. and he wanted an older, an older player, and I, I fitted the bill. I think Trevor had initially recommended Brian Robson, because Liam was leaving to go to Inter. Liam had gone from Juve to Sampdoria a couple of years there, and then Inter had come in for him. So they wanted a, a sort of old boy, a senior player, to go to Sampdoria. Trevor had suggested Brian Robson. I don't know it was either Brian Robson did fancy it or man you wouldn't sell. And then I was asked. I didn't know about it. I knew that I'd been rumoured. There was also rumours that Roma were interested in me. And I didn't know until after Cup Final in Rome that they were going to try and buy me Sampdoria. And what I love about this, one of the myriad reasons I wanted to speak to you is that I remember being bitterly unhappy for Dundee United, and a friend of yours, I'm not sure how close you were to Walter at the time, he was deputy to Jim McLean, they played mm. brilliantly at Town Nice and, and taken Roma yeah. apart. In, in my judgement, they you were weren't cheated. As, you weren't as disappointed as I was, mm. or we were, because obviously we were wanting to play, we, do we want to play Rome in Rome? If that, that has to be that, we'll deal with it. But we would much rather have played Dundee United <laughs> in Rome. So, for purely patriotic reasons, not because it no, was going to be th- less hostile, maybe a little bit easier. Yeah. Okay, I hear you on that one. You know, Dundee United were roundly cheated, and there's, there's images of, of, of people spitting at them and players bullying and the cops standing by, and I was enraged as a Scot. So how much did I want team featuring Sunas Hanch and Dalglish to go out and beat Roma? And you do in the situation where there's penalties and Bruce does what he does. And your first game back, this is what I love, your first game back, must have been torrid for Sampdoria. It's only three, four months later. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that he saved a special welcome for you. You score, you, you get a draw. And it was a marker of that season where I've noticed you score extraordinary big goals, mm. scoring at Milan, scoring the cup final. You, 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 you never lose to the champions of Verona, I think, that season. You certainly don't lose to Maradona's. You score at, you, you score, Platini scores, you score against Juventus. Mm. Albeit that 1984 at Liverpool was special. That that first year, particularly at Sampdoria, must have felt extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, it was all new, and Italy's a great country to live in. It was a, it was a new adventure. Everything about it was exciting. There was a downside to it because what we used to do, play on a Sunday, on a Thursday, we would play amateur teams. We'd go to their grounds, amateur teams, and beat them 15 nil. As a training exercise. As a training exercise, where a Berslini was a very good coach won a championship with Inter Milan. But on the Wednesday night, I'm watching Liverpool and the European Cup playing whoever they're playing, and they get to the final, don't they? Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at them on a Wednesday night thinking, I should be playing in that game. Mm-hmm. Well, tomorrow I'm going to play Rapallo and we'll win 16-0. That was, that was the only... I suppose I can't look back and think... It's I'm a well-explained downside, but I'm talking about, you know, you, you, matching yourself with Platini, matching but, yourself with Maradona... Beat, okay, Milan hadn't become the Saki Milan, but it's still AC Milan. Yeah. You're regularly scoring. You win the cup for the first time in Sampdoria's history. Luca Vialli and Mancini are coming through. I mean, it's a grubby little horrible Mediterranean town. Where, where we live was gone. We were south of there. Right. It was called Nervy. There must have been moments in that season where you thought, you know, God's on my team. He's <laughs> looking after me. No. Without sounding big-headed, you know, I've been a serial winner. I've, got, I've won something everywhere I've been, more or less. Winning a cup there, another cup. I'd won three the year before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think two the year before that, and maybe three or two. So, well, that's, that sounds terribly big headed, but I was used to winning trophies. But the excitement around you of people saying this is special, that, that doesn't in, sort of 
infect you and think, well, I've done something for, not really, okay, I can, I can see. This is a verbal medium, but for those listening, the expression in Graham's face says, that was a stupid question. <laughs> I've answered that already. And then the leaving was, e no, tell me about Viali and Mancini coming through. Um, these twins of mischief and brilliant footballers. Yeah, Viali was great fun. Workaholic, you know, really, really good character. Solid in every way. Mancini was more, he was, mo he was a bit younger. He was moody, difficult, extremely talented, extremely talented. Didn't work as hard as, as Luca, but, um, you know, you could see a mercurial talent. You know, he had a real bit of magic about him. And, you know, I used to get after him for not working harder, but it would go in one ear and out the other. <laughs> Why did they form such a, po because Luca was a posh boy. Maybe some of the work ethic was based on, I, I, I have to show this. He comes mm. from a very privileged background. This is something he and I have talked about. And he's also very, I, I think he's a football he's a bright, bright man. No, he's a bright, bright man boy. in life. What, what, what was the click between the two of them? Because they then got up to capers, famously. Yeah. Oh, no, but they were two, you remember, I'm 31. They're 19 and 20. They're young boys. Mm. They're just starting off. Yeah, they were mischievous. You know, they were full of daft things. It was a great time to be around because they weren't just the only young guys in that. You know, and they did look up to the older players, and I was one of them. You know, that's the older Italian players there, Scanciani, the captain. Um, Bordone, the goalkeeper, was part of the World Cup winning team or squad. And I was one of, one of the old guys as well. And did they listen all the time? Certainly not. <laughs> did they listen some of the time? Yes. No, no um, regrets other than, you know, you talked about. Italian football, you made the choice to come back I, I to Scotland to Rangers. I can't really, you know, regrets. Should have stayed at Liverpool a bit longer. Yeah. Should have not come back to Rangers. You know, the way it all worked out for me, that move, leaving Liverpool to go to Sampdoria, was a great couple of years. And then could have stayed and played another three years in Sampdoria. I think I could have done. But then coming back to Rangers and how that panned out. That's what I was meaning, because at Samp, for anybody who doesn't remember, that team that you could have stayed on for another four or five years, then wins the title. Yeah. Plays the Cup Winners' Cup final. Plays the European plays Cup the, Euro the European... The, it's a pivotal moment for European football when Sam, a very talented Sam side, picked the dream it? team. Yeah. Therefore... Koeman goal, Wembley. Uh, a Koeman goal at Wembley. And, and, and after English football's been excluded from Europe, there's been hooliganism all over Europe, it's maybe not the greatest ever final. But there was something about that Cruyffera that made European football swivel away a little bit from defensive football. And I think there was the beginnings of people, television was covering Barcelona's four or five consecutive league triumphs. Much more then, I think it was a pivotal time for European football. It changed. Mm. And you might have been part of a SAMP team, as you said. Hypothetical. Had you, st had you stayed, it's a choice. Therefore, if you match that up against the Rangers experience, no regrets because you have to keep moving. No, because Rangers was great. Mm. That was a great time. Going there as a young man, what was I? 33, having encouraged all the foolishness, but both to do some of the things we did. If I, if I was, not I'm going to at my age, but if I was going to that job today, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the balls to do what I did then. As a young man, it was, you know, blinkers on, just head down, and believing you can achieve anything. Was there a feeling then that you could rewrite the rules, you could, you could I, take a club and change it, sign who you wanted? Extremely selfish, extremely focused and selfish my way has to be my way didn't really have time for other people's opinions which is a young man's thing which looking back for the largest part worked for me but it was a mistake i wasn't appreciative of other people's thoughts and feelings that's the way i was then and i've i like to think 
you know, I've, I've long matured from, from being that individual. Does the, did the very fact of going back to Scotland bring out that Well, you're Scottish. You're Scottish. You know, what, you know what Rangers is about. You know what the West of Scotland's about. Yeah, and that, that, you know, you, you, you hear it all the time about, you know, what Fergie used to install it. Jose Mourinho's trying to, not trying to, does install it. You know, it's us against the world. Mm -hmm. And that's our, you know, the Rangers song, No One Likes Us, We Don't Care. You know, that, that's how it got you. It does say something. It's a actual statement of, we just don't care. It's about winning and it's about being us and yeah. well, box to everybody else. Yeah, and I was, I would imagine I would have been pretty horrible. No, my question didn't have any implicit criticism. It was about... No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm offering it up without you asking. Because mm -hmm. I do look back on that. There's lots of things I'm proud of mm -hmm. in that period at Rangers, but there's lots of things slightly embarrassing looking back. The pride, apart from the trophies, would probably include bringing some fantastic footballers north, making Scottish football very much a centre of the focus in Europe, more than we've been for a long yep. time. The yeah. sign, I remember the signing of Butcher seeming yeah, revolutionary no, at the time. You know, history was kind to us because, you know, it was um, after the Heysel disaster, the English teams banned from Europe. We had our stadium. We'd had our disaster at Ibrox. We had a new stadium. We were ahead of the game. And we could match anyone in the UK. It was before the television money had come into the English game. We could manage to match anyone for transfer fees and salaries at that time. And with no English foot, no English teams involved in Europe, you know we had the we had the European football, so we could attract them as well. For that reason, timing was everything. Originally, David Holmes as a chairman supported me to the very hilt, and then after that, David Murray. You can be lucky in football, or you can be unlucky. That period of my career, I was lucky. The timing was it was, it was good. I always wonder. We need to wind up because you have appointments to to meet. But the, the two I want to finish with be. I always wondered if. Maybe the, that glut of opportunity, ability to do things, competitive instinct, going to a very volatile football city and being a player and a manager at that age. Impossible today to do that at a big club. But again, I, I, I was fearless. And when I think back now, if, if someone said, go and do that now, I would I'd panic. <laughs> I mean, you just as a young man, you go in there thinking, well, none of this is a problem. Hmm. And you don't care what toes you trample on. You don't care who you upset. And then things happen to you throughout your life where you think, oh, I must have been horrible to be around. And I'd hate to think I was anything like that character today. Clearly aren't, but these are also things that, when distilled, added to your talent, made you a serial winner everywhere. You can't discard that side, mm. I would argue. Certainly is my yeah, yeah, point of view. If I had a chance to turn the clock back, would I be, would I be a more mellow, more likeable person and sacrifice maybe winning some of the things I've won. Not a chance. Good. The, the last thing to say, you're very educational, clinical, fearless in your television football analysis. Mm. Are you conscious of being part of a generation at Sky um, that has done things completely differently and that I, I'm arguing has completely changed your football supporters' ability to understand football, to analyse yeah. football, to expect more out of what you're told about football? I, you, undoubtedly. We... we, we, we um, Football is a, is a game of so many opinions. You get 10 guys in the room, they'll all see it differently. You get 10 pros in the room, they'll all see it differently. I, I think what Sky have done, I don't think they've just educated the man in the street. I think they've educated the footballer. You know, if you think of a football player, he, he's in the dressing room. He's got, he's, he generally listens to two, maybe three people. His manager, the first team coach. 
That's the opinion he's listening to. And then he'll watch Sky on a Monday night or Super Sunday and he'll hear the guys talking and we'll see it one way. So then he'll, they'll have a team meeting maybe the, on a Monday and the manager and the coach will offer up a different take on it. And I think we've, we've helped educate footballers, not just the man on the street. Because you bring to that seat... Well, without naming names, I think many ex-professional players have such an ego that it's good enough to turn up, say what they see and move away with their fee. Mm. Now, that's very clinically not what they get with you. And I'd say it's not what they get with Gary or Jamie either. Mm. I think that new generation has, has helped make a Monday night slot something that maybe you wouldn't watch the game, but it's unmissable now. But have you been, done that in Spain? It's not, as, it's not as clinical. It's very analytical. It's extremely analytical. They'll stop, they'll repeat action or they'll play it from a long way back and ask the pros to talk through decision-making or do you train for that? But in terms of being clear-cut about maybe errors, fallibility, things that you would correct if you were in charge of it, I think that you, your brand and your colleagues but saying it as it is, is stronger than it is in Spain. Mm-hmm. But also I think you've taken it towards the Spanish model in that I grew up and there's no analysis of football yeah. on television no. at all. No, we didn't. We listened to what our manager said and our coach said, and that was it. But also the people who commentated on it called the action, moved away, and that was yeah. it. That's all you got. It wasn't enough. Well, as long as it's satisfying and enjoying, uh, enjoyable, that would be akin to the experience you've given me. It's great to talk about football. Mm. Thank you very much for taking so well, much time. I've enjoyed time. it. You're going to give people who listen to that a great deal of satisfaction. We've only, we'll have to come back to the second half. Please, God, let me do that. Thank you very much. Although, it's a big compliment because... I was going to ask you that, and I'm really glad to hear that on tape, yeah. that that's a pact. No, we'll that's do a it. deal. Graeme Soonis, thank you very much well, indeed. It's been a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Fantastic. Forza Football. It's always nice to finish an interview with a guest saying, can we do this again? More importantly, I hope you enjoyed it as much as he did and I did. With that, Graham Soonis was off to play golf in the late summer sunshine, a sport that he didn't like until he picked up clubs about three years ago. One of his victims told me that having shown Graham the rudiments of the game early on, it took about three months for Mr Soonis to thrash him in the golf course and show that he'd reached a seven handicap in that space of time. That's the kind of fellow we're talking about. That's how he rolls. One of Britain's all-time great players. The big interview's been a heck of an experience for us since April. We began it thinking it was a good idea. We were overwhelmed by your enjoyment and your positive feedback. That's felt good. About one million of you have downloaded it um, across the months since April. We've had 10 guests 12 big interview podcasts. If we reach our goal, then we'd like to at least keep to that. That would mean another 24. In total, that would mean that those of you, the 200 of you who've invested 40 quid to come to the fiestas, you'd be getting your episodes all in all for about pound and 10 pence. I think and I hope that we've given you value for that. Let me be clear about one thing. I was talking rubbish at the start of the podcast there. The campaign ends on November 18th, not 19th. Let me also be clear about something that um, concerns me. We set a goal because Kickstarter is very strict. If we reach that goal, then we don't have to give the money back to everybody. If we go beyond that goal, 
if we reach above our target, that's not money for me and for Backpage. That's money which will go towards producing more and more episodes. We'll be able to get guests who live further away. We'll be able to go on longer without needing to come back to you and ask you for more support in the future. We want to be producing at least as many episodes as we have thus far, more if we possibly can. The ideal would be to make it a weekly event. That would be fun for all of us. It's a big, big ask. This type of coordination and travel and getting people like this to spare time in a diary isn't particularly easy, but you've told us it's worthwhile. So if you've enjoyed it all and you want the podcast to continue, go now to kickstarter.com and search for Graham Hunter. Everything you need to know about the campaign is there. For now, all you need to know is this. Without your support, we wouldn't exist. Get your support in now. This is the last time I'll ask. Thank you for being there. Many thanks to everybody who supported. I'm glad that my guests and I have made you laugh. The big interview is produced by me and Backpage, the clever guys who came up with the idea, edited by the exceptional Alex Aidy, and the music you hear is by the superbly talented Beer Jacket. Thank you to every single one of them as well. Big interview over and out. Hope to see you on the other side. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.